Well, if you've ever been around a house that's being built, um, especially if it's your home that's being built, you know that the slowest part is the beginning and the end, laying the foundation and doing the finished work. And of the two, the one that's most important, obviously, is laying the foundation. And Paul is still in the foundation laying here in Romans. The first three chapters, he's laying the foundation. And, it, and, I, and I'm tempted to kind of go through it pretty quickly. Um, but I, I've, I'm restrained. I feel like that if, if God um, had Paul go as slowly as he did through this, and it, it seems a bit repetitive, um, it's for a reason. And, and we shouldn't go too quickly um, through what the Lord is revealing here through Paul. Um, this section, beginning in verse 17, Paul, I believe, is kind of changing course, not, not his, his main thrust here, but he's, but he's changing the application. If you recall, in the first chapter of Romans, he was mainly, it would seem, dealing with people who, who have a knowledge of God through conscience, and through creation, but who do not honor God and do not give thanks. And in consequence, they, they just start spiraling downward into greater and greater folly and darkness. And it just becomes just a, a pit, a spiraling pit that, that we fall into when we just, just ignore God and His hand in our, in our lives and in this world. In chapter 2, he seems to be wanting to address not just those people who are obviously sinners and obviously in need of God and don't even care about the things of God, but chapter 2 seems to be, especially the first 16 verses, about people who do have some acknowledgement of God and heart for God and people who are basically generally pretty good people. You wouldn't mind having them as your neighbor, but they're not necessarily people who go to church. But they're good, moral people, but yet they still need God. And in fact, their hypocrisy, they're having a standard and not living up to it, um, and, and thinking that they are good when God says they are not good, may in fact be worse in the sight of God than those who just ignore God and say there is no God. Because at least that person is open in his rebellion and is not presuming a pride and a self-sufficiency. Whereas the person who, who is saying that he's basically good is making a statement about himself that God doesn't make about him. And so the pride reeks in his life. Verse 17, though, he seems to be switching now and wanting to address the topic of what about the Jews? Because if there were ever a people group on the face of this earth that ought to have right standing with God simply on the basis of who they are. It ought to be the Jews. And Paul's going to spend more time talking about them. In fact, three chapters, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's going to focus on the status of the Jews. And in one of those chapters, he'll say, man, they have lots of privileges. And he's going to say, they have the fathers, they have the promises, they have Christ himself, they have the law, and he lists all the different privileges of being a Jew. This section here, beginning in verse 17 and going on into chapter 3, he's picking up on that same topic. It's as though he's asking the question, first of all, is the Jew saved? And then he'll ask the question, beginning in chapter 3, 
he'll say, is there any benefit, inherent benefit to being a Jew? And then he'll ask this third question in chapter 3, and that is, are they better than we are? Are they saved? Now the reason he's asking this is because they are a religious people. They have the Word of God. The law has been given to them. And again, the promises, the covenants, even Christ was a Jew. They have been a privileged people. They are at the top of the pyramid when it comes to revelation and God making Himself known to them. All the rest of us are at the bottom of the pyramid. In God making Himself known to a people on earth, there has never been a people that He has made Himself more known to than the Jewish people. And so it's a good question. What about the Jew? Are they saved? I know there's a um, local pastor, quite well known, he's gotten himself in a little bit of heat because he initially said they need to be saved. And now he's come out and said, you don't need to evangelize Jewish people because they're already saved. Now Paul's going to say very categorically in Romans, I wish that my people, the Jews, were saved. They aren't. They need to be. Now, I hope you don't find that offensive. You could plug in, instead of Jew, any other religious group. What about the Catholics? Are they saved? What about the Baptist? Are they saved? I have a Baptist pastor friend who likes to say, at the resurrection, we Baptists will go to heaven first. And then he follows up and says, because the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. <laughs> we could put any religious people in that blank. What about evangelical free church people? Bible church people? Don't take offense here when Paul says the Jews need to be saved. You could put any religious group in that blank. We are not saved because of where we go to church, how often we go to church, how often we read our Bible, who we associate with, even how many times a day we pray. That is not the basis of right standing with God. Look at what he'll say, beginning in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Now think about that. Back in chapter 1, in verse 21, speaking of the irreligious, the people who have no respect for God, he says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. And here he's saying to the Jews, 
you dishonor God. You don't fail to honor God. You dishonor God. And I kind of think Paul's saying, that's worse. It's one thing just to ignore God. It's another thing to dishonor God. Because the result, when you claim there's a God, and then you don't live true to God, is that you cause God to be blasphemed. Verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Your religiosity and your failure to live what you profess actually works against you because it means that people, they look at you and they look at the way that you live and they go, and you go to church and you call yourself a Christian and they blaspheme God because of you. Now, I don't believe that Paul is saying that we're saved on the basis of how we live in our works. Obviously, he's not saying that. We talked about that last week. We'll get into it more as we go through Romans. That we're not saved on the basis of works, but by the grace of God through faith in Christ. But our profession ought to be matched by how we walk. Our walk ought to match our talk. And here he's saying to Jewish people, the most religious people, the most privileged people on the earth in terms of the revelation that God has given to a people group, that they are not saved simply because of what they have been made recipients of, the revelation of God. They need to be in a relationship with God and their lack of obedience to what God says and what they know to be true proves they are not in that relationship. Think again about the things that Paul says. They bear the name Jew. They boast. They rely upon the law. They boast in God. They know His will. They approve the things that are essential. And they aren't saved. Now that's pretty big stuff. Sometimes people want to think that a person without Christ cannot know the truth. That he just, he just, he just can't, he just has no comprehension. I don't think that's what Scripture says. I think there may not be any personal appropriation of the truth. It may not be alive in him. But clearly, in the case of the Jews, and in many more people besides them, they know the truth, Paul's going to argue. They have the Scriptures. They know what the Bible says concerning the suffering Christ and that he would rise again. And yet they are not saved, not because they don't know, but because of a willfulness not to surrender to what God has given them in Christ, not to put their trust in Christ. They have been made privileged possessors of revelation, but that does not mean they are immune immune from the judgment of God. One of the reasons that people practice infant baptism is because they believe that when the parents are saved, that the children enter into a covenant of grace based upon the parents' faith. And that therefore the children are already recipients and partakers of that grace. And the baptism, infant baptism, denotes that. It is a, they view it as a covenant sign of being in relationship with God from the very moment that they're born because of the parents' faith. 
They will argue that that infant baptism is akin to circumcision among the Jewish people. And that a male, when he was born into a Jewish family, was circumcised on the eighth day. And that that circumcision was a sign of a covenant relationship, as infant baptism would be for today. Paul's going to argue here in this chapter, that circumcision means nothing if it is not met with faith, which works itself out in obedience. We would say, by extension, the same thing would be true for infant baptism. And that's why the majority of Protestant churches today would not practice infant baptism, because they've come to recognize that that in itself means nothing, that there needs to be a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And that you cannot come to Christ based upon the faith of your parents. John chapter 1, he will say that that we must be born again. We are born again by the Spirit of God. And that that is a work that God has to do. It is not by the flesh, not by blood, not by the will of any man. But we must receive Him in order to be saved. It's not based upon anyone else. And it's not based upon ourselves. But it's the grace of God as we come to Him through faith. So having established that your hypocrisy, your lack of integrity between what you profess and what you live indicates that you aren't saved. That all the revelation in the world is not enough to mean that you are in right standing with God. You must individually have a personal relationship with God. Religion is not going to do it. This is big stuff. For those of us that um, were raised in Christian homes and have raised our children in Christian homes, we know how serious this is because we want our children to walk with God. We want them to have a personal relationship with God and not to just be inoculated because of the religious environment that they've grown up in. Would you rather live next to a religious family or a non-religious family? I think all of us would prefer to live next to a family that went to church every Sunday than a family that gave no acknowledgement to God. Generally speaking, that family is going to live a better life than the family that gives no acknowledgement to God. Generally speaking. And again, many studies have been done on this. That the family that goes to church weekly... They're much more likely to have fewer problems um, in in terms of children dropping out of school, children going into drugs, um, typically less big problems in their life. They're often, and the most, in fact, they are. They're the most generous people in any country in the world are those that go to church on a weekly basis. It makes a direct impact upon their life and how they live, even in terms of being more humanitarian toward their neighbors. Many fascinating studies have been done on the generosity of people, particularly Americans and around the world, and it all comes down to to their religious profession and their practice of that religion. Americans still are the most religious people um, in terms of weekly attendance at church of any country in the world. And it shows. We would much rather live next to people who go to church every Sunday than those that don't. And because it does make some practical difference, 
The temptation is to think we're in right standing with God. It made a practical difference for Jews to be Jews. It did. They were better for it. Not personally better, but as a people. They were privileged possessors. They were under the blessing of God. But they needed to be saved. Just as every single person ever born does. I was reading um, recently a, a, a book that describes um, the difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology. And, and the author there was, was quoting um, a, a very distinguished um, um, th- um, covenant reformed theologian. And was saying how in the history of the covenant reform thinking that it has been very typical for them to, for parents in that line of thinking to just assume that their children are saved until they prove otherwise. Now, again, probably the majority of Americans, at least, in our Christianity have not been comfortable with that. In fact, we look at the history of the United States and we go, that's kind of how we started. The pilgrims came into this country, set up their communities, and they had the thinking that if we can just have our own Christian community and protect it from all outside ungodly influence, then basically we can bring in the kingdom of God on earth. Because the children are in a covenant of grace because of our faith, So they obviously are going to grow up and know the Lord, and their children will, and it just starts to multiply, and sooner or later you just take over the world. It lasted about one generation because their children didn't turn out the way they thought that they would. And again, they started from an assumption our children are saved because of the way that we're raising them unless they prove otherwise. Whereas most Christians would say, Our children are born sinners. And they are not saved until they prove that they are. Through faith in Jesus Christ, which manifests itself in a love for Him that desires to be obedient to Him. Paul is saying here, if that's true for the Jew, that's true for all of us. The children who have grown up in Bernie Bible Church need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Individually, they must recognize their need of Jesus. They must individually ask the question, do I have a relationship with Christ? I am not saved simply because I've grown up in Bernie Bible Church and have Christian parents. I need a personal relationship with Him. Do I or do I not? have that relationship. He says in verse 26, If therefore, showing the contrast, the uncircumcised man, the non-Jew, keeps the requirements of the law, and and he's speaking superficially because he's going to tell us that nobody can keep the law. So he's superficially or hypothetically, if he keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In fact, You might as well say he's a better Jew than you are. To use our terminology, he's a better Christian than you are. We're considered a Christian nation, still by other nations around the world. Any Muslim nation would call the United States a Christian nation. And we know that's not true. 
But nonetheless, that is how we regard it around the world, simply because we've been born in a country that's not Muslim, or not Hindu, or not Buddhist. Therefore, all that's left is Christian. And so if you've been born in this Christian, many, in this country, many people would regard you as a Christian. In fact, you can walk down the street. Our students at His Hill have done it on occasion and just done interviews, street interviews with people, and ask them, are you a Christian? And you'll hear people say, well, yes, I was born in the United States. I'm not Muslim. Then I'm, in, I'm a Christian. That is, that is not an uncommon sentiment in this country. And so it's as though Paul is saying, if you've got a guy who doesn't even call himself a Christian, and he lives better, more true to the word, more true to his conscience, than what the person who calls himself a Christian does, then you've got to think the guy who's not the Christian is the Christian. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? When the final day of judgment comes, it'll be the Gentile who judges the Jew, and not the other way around. That had to be huge for these Jews. When the final day of judgment comes, it may be the guy who is the atheist, who judges the person who called himself a Christian, who judges the person who went to church all of his life, calling himself a Christian, and never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. But that atheist maybe lived a better more morally consistent life, more obedient to the conscience that God gave him than the person who's attended church all of his life. Verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. I don't think we should say too much from this verse. We would be saying too much if we said that Paul is saying all people who are in a personal relationship with Christ, all people who have been born again by the Spirit of God, that they are all spiritually Jews. That would be to say too much. Paul's not talking about all Christians. He's talking about Jews. Remember back in 17, he started talking about Jews. He's not changed his subject. He's talking to people who are Jews according to the flesh. People who in their race as Jews are taking confidence in their race And saying, we are the chosen people of God because we are the physical seed of Abraham. And he's saying to them, your outward circumcision means nothing. You must be circumcised of the heart. Now, every person who has put his faith in Christ, the scripture describes as being circumcised of heart. The book of Colossians. Paul says that if you put your faith in Christ, you have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, and you have been circumcised of heart. 
That's true of every Christian. But Paul's point here is not that. His point is to the Jews. You have to be more than a physical descendant of Abraham to truly be saved. Again, by extension, it's not enough to simply go to church and be religious. You Jews have your religion, and religion is a good thing. And religion, religion is not necessarily a negative. It is a gift from God, what God has given you. He has given you the Judaism, a, a religious and, and cultural system. It came from God. It's not a bad thing. There is a privilege in being a Jew. There is a benefit in being a Jew. But salvation is not one of those. You have got to have a personal relationship with Christ. There is a benefit to growing up in a Christian home. There is a benefit to going to Christian schools, to living in a community where people acknowledge Christ and go to church. There is a benefit to that. Who would not prefer to live in Bernie, Texas, as opposed to an eastern former Soviet country that's Muslim? I've got a quote in one of the, in one of the books that I've read from a Muslim um, writer from back in the 17th century, I think it was. And he said, I would much rather live as a Muslim man in a Christian country than to live as, as, a, as a Christian in a Muslim country. In fact, he said, I would rather live as a Muslim in a Christian country than live as a Muslim in a Muslim country. That it is that much different. Who would not rather live in this kind of country? There is a benefit. There is an advantage. Salvation is not one of them. We must have a personal relationship with Christ. That's all Paul's saying. He's not saying every Christian is a spiritual Jew. He's saying every Jew needs to be a spiritual Jew. Every Jew needs to be a Jew both outwardly and inwardly. He needs to be circumcised in flesh and circumcised in heart. Another way that Paul says this is over in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. Beginning in verse 2 of Philippians 3, he says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Those are the Jews. For we are the true circumcision, Paul speaking about himself and the other apostles who were Jews who had gone out, and he says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Again, that's all true of any Christian in general, but he's speaking specifically of who the true Jews are. They are Jews outwardly and foremost inwardly because of a personal relationship with Christ. Every Christian is called a son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, every Christian. But only the Jews are called Jews. There's no verse in Scripture that calls a Christian a spiritual Jew. The Bible does call us sons and daughters of Abraham. But there's a difference. The Jews didn't, become, didn't start being called Jews until after they went down into Egypt and came out as a nation. There was Abraham. He had many sons. There was Isaac. And then there was Jacob. And it was from Jacob on that they began to be called Jews. We are the spiritual descendants of Abraham if we have put our faith in Christ. That's what Paul's going to argue for in Romans chapter 4.
In the same way that Abraham was justified by faith, so in declared righteous, so are we. Really a very simple thing here. It's not complicated. Religion is not enough. And again, as, even as, as Christians, we know this, we all would affirm this, as people who have put their faith in Christ, we'd give our amen. It's not enough to simply grow up in a Christian community. We must know Christ personally. What we don't necessarily affirm is that that is true in how we walk with the Lord as well. We we are saved not by religion, but by a personal relationship with Christ. And we walk with Him in the same way. I remember when the Jesus movement was getting started back in the 60s and 70s. People then were, were kind of fond of saying, I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. And that was great. Again, there's nothing wrong with religion in itself unless that is becoming a substitute for the relationship. It never should be. A personal relationship with Christ, which will result oftentimes in a consistency in our life, in our devotion to Christ, which will appear to be religious to other people. Why do I thank God before I eat? It's not because there's anything in the Bible that says, I should pray every time I eat. Now, the Bible does say we give thanks for our food. And, but that's why we do it. It's because we're grateful. We're just grateful. Not because I'm trying to live out a religion, but as I practice gratitude to other people looking on, it's going to look like religion. I read my Bible daily. Why? Because I want to be, just live out of a relationship with Christ. I want to know what He has to say to me. I want to be fed by Him. Anybody else looking on? He says, well, in your religion, you have to read your Bible every day. No, I don't. But in my relationship with Christ, I want to be in God's Word. I hunger to hear from Him and to be fed by Him. And so it may look religious, but it's coming out of a relationship with Him. It's about the heart. It is by the Spirit. The last part of verse 29 Again, circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. It is by the Spirit. We acknowledge that nobody is ever saved by his own effort. God saves. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. But we'd also acknowledge that He does not force Himself upon us, that he comes to those who simply by faith, and faith is the empty hand, as Francis Schaeffer describes it. Faith is simply the empty hand that comes to God and receives. As many as receive him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. And so with empty hand, we come to him, we receive, and we are born again by the Spirit of God. There is no merit in that faith. It's not a work because all it is is emptiness that acknowledges its emptiness and comes to God to receive. And we shall be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The Spirit of God has to do it. We've been praying for Jan's dad's salvation and we rejoice that by the Spirit of God he surrendered his heart to Christ and then almost immediately quit fighting and slipped away to be in the presence of God, 
when the doctors thought that it would be another week before he'd go to be with the Lord. By the Spirit of God. But his heart was surrendered. He had to receive. We know that God applied his work, that God was wooing the man to himself, and in his final hours, he humbled himself and yielded. When Jan's husband, Mike, was speaking to him, he told him just that way. He says, it's time for you to put aside your pride and to humble yourself and to put your trust in Christ. And he did. By the Spirit of God, that he trusted and yielded to him. It took a long time, 86 years, to recognize that it's not religion, it's not a good life, it is faith in Jesus Christ, which I need. Tom was speaking this morning about, you know, revival begins in our own hearts. A desire for him and to walk with him. And it really, I know that, that much of the working of God in, in our lives, my life for sure, is to strip away all the pretense all the stuff that I tend to look at and, and judge myself and evaluate myself as being a pretty good boy. And God says, I'll have none of it. It's about a personal relationship with me. You're not a better Christian, Charlie, because you read your Bible. You're not a better Christian because you tell other people about Jesus. All of that is just shadows. It's not the substance. It is about trusting me to come to me initially for salvation and to live before me in every day. Trusting in me moment by moment. That's true religion. You can't predict it necessarily. You don't know how it's going to always flesh itself out. But there's that core in, in each person that says in every person who's truly been born again, saying, this is what I know I need. I need Jesus. And he comes to Jesus in his need. Every day, every hour, it's Jesus that I need. And by the Spirit, not by the letter, he is born again. He lives in relationship with him. My wife, Patsy, um, and a couple of the students that we have with us from his hill are from an area of Pennsylvania that's known for its um, Christianity. It's kind of been historically one of the, if not the Mecca um, in the United States. That's Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's where the Amish are from, where many Mennonites still live, and probably 90% of the people go to church. And some of the Patsy's cousins of our generation um, have been very diligently praying for the salvation of their, of their children. And that family, just that one family now, is way over 100 people. You know, it's approaching 200 people now, something like that, in that family. Most of them live right there within a few miles of each other. Very unique situation. But some of these, you know, 50s-plus generation are recognizing that their kids seem to be not warm toward Christ. It's been a very prosperous area. Prosperity will often come to people 
as they live humble lives, acknowledging God. And, and, they've, and it's very now easy for the kids to be seduced by the prosperity and by the materialism and to not enter into that personal relationship with Christ. And I know some of those cousins have been diligently praying that those kids would really come to know Christ personally. And I've mentioned to you that one of those um, has come to know Christ. He's a young married man in his 20s, went to one of the Torchbearer Bible schools, and it wasn't until after he came back home and got married and and started um, seeing some different struggles and things within his family that he recognized, I don't have a personal relationship with Christ, and I never have. And he has received Christ. It's a little disturbing to his parents because they thought that he'd been a Christian since childhood. And he's going... And see, sometimes parents can be the, be the biggest obstacle to their children really coming to know Christ personally. Because it's scary to us to think, you mean this kid that I prayed with when he was five years old to receive Christ never received Christ? And, and now they're talking about that they didn't even know him, and then we feel a little bit like we're failures as parents or something, you know? And, and sometimes they're the biggest hindrance parents are to a kid really coming to know Christ. It's been a little hard for those parents to say, our son says he didn't know Jesus, and now he does. I talk about wanting my kids to walk with the Lord, and I believe that they are right now, but as they make decisions of where they're going to go in the world, maybe be a missionary. Nathan's going to Africa this summer. Maybe God's going to call him to Africa. That's going to be a long way from home. I kind of like having my kids nearby. Am I going to stand in the way of what God is doing in their lives? I think about in his hill with the Bible school and how many different times we've heard from, from campers who have been through the program, man, I'd love to come to his hill and be a student there or be on staff. And many times it's the parents who say no, no. We want you to pursue an education, pursue getting a job. But don't, what are here, their children here, don't pursue Christ. Not in that way. No. We can talk it and say that we acknowledge that it's not about religion, it's about a personal relationship with Christ. But when people start living out a personal relationship with Christ, it can make everybody around them uncomfortable. And what Paul's saying here had to make the Jewish people very uncomfortable. It's about a personal relationship with Christ.